Hey there, just a quick message ahead of this episode to say we hope you like the rebrand, which includes a new website, rawuk.com, that's the URL. On there you can listen to and watch all our previous content. You can get extra content. You can also buy our first ever Raw merchandise and even sign up to become a Raw member, which will keep us going and keep you at the heart of this exciting journey, earning perks in return. We need your support, so please do check us out at rawuk.com and remember to like, comment and subscribe to everything we do on all our channels. And of course, make sure you tell all your pals. But most of all, enjoy this latest episode. Cheers. Your name's not Dan, you're not coming in. Hello, welcome to another edition of Raw the 90s Rave podcast with me, Tom Latcham. Well, you know by now that we love guests with a cracking yarn here on Raw, and we've got another one for you today. Many of you listening will remember the Rave Orange, which hosted some massive parties in London back in the early and mid-90s. But what you probably won't realise, it was run by a former police officer. <laughs> Aside from his work as a promoter, Chris Paul is also a successful musician, DJ, producer and record label boss who helped bring Acid House to the mainstream while working with some massive names. And he's even at one time top of the pop star with his act, Isotonic. Uh, but after growing tired of the UK, moved to the US, where he continued working in the music industry with Ice-T, no less. Uh, and uh, he even found time to become a cop again. Uh, but he's not totally given up promoting, and he's bringing back the Orange brand for a reunion in August. The man certainly got a story or two to tell, including how he DJed for Princess Diana and the Queen Mother. Who knows what they like? We'll find out. Let's welcome him now. Uh, hello, Chris. How you doing, mate? Hello, mate. Good to see you. Good morning. You too. too. Yes. So you're live from uh, California, which uh, makes us very jealous. The weather, I'm sure, is lovely, uh, which is not here. But there you go. Um, How is life over there? It's uh, it's beautiful. 26 degrees today. Um, I'm in Palm Springs, which is desert. So it's just sunny all the time. Good. uh, and, 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 And how is life in California at the moment with COVID and all that sort of stuff? Is there some freedom? I guess it was much the same as the UK. They they didn't seem to lock us down as much. Um, but, uh, you know, much the same as the UK. I think they all followed the same kind of plan. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was pretty miserable being locked down for a year. As, as you well know, the only advantage is the sun was shining. I know you had a bit of that for a while as well. but um, Quite some time ago now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, and what about the live music scene in America? Because I know that obviously you are um, still involved in live music out there. You DJ um, and you produce, and that, I mean you promote as well. But um, that's over here. But what's what's happened to the live music scene out there? Obviously, it's it's just been put on hold, really. Here, everything's put on hold. I mean, I w- when I was li- I lived in the first ten years, I lived in Hollywood, um, and there's a there's a huge live music scene there. There's, uh, you know, the WAG, all, all the clubs along the Sunset Strip. So it's, it's always going off uh, practically every night. But, of course, COVID, uh, that was that. Everything got shut down. And I think most things went online, including me. Yes, indeed. Well, thank God for online. Otherwise, this would not be happening. So uh, God bless the Internet. It saved us. I mean, can you imagine being locked down without having the Internet? It would have been absolutely uh, appalling. There would have been literally nothing to do. Um, So, uh, Chris, do you class yourself primarily as a musician, a DJ, a producer, promoter or label boss or all of them? (laughs) Yes. What do you mean? Yes. (laughs) Well, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't I put labels on anything. I mean, I just have an idea and I go, I run with it. 
Um, it, it's just all of those encapsulate the music, uh, what I do. And, and, you know, my life has just been music. So whether it's running the label, pressing dodgy white labels back in the day, um, nicking samples we shouldn't have done, um, label bus, I, I don't know. I guess, yeah, I've got a couple of labels. Uh, producer, mainly. I would think I, I, I spent a great deal of time in studios, um, but I've spent my entire life DJing since I was 15, I think. It's yeah, well, we're going we're gonna to talk all about that and, uh, and work through your career and how, how you came to... I mean, you play some amazing gigs, frankly, as well. But also, you are a promoter, and, and sort of the reason why we became connected was because I noticed that they were putting on an Orange reunion. And I looked at it, and I thought, what a fantastic lineup that is, a really great lineup. And then I looked into it a bit, and I was like, oh, you run it. And then I was like, he lives in America. That's weird. Uh, so um, uh, we love getting promoters. They're always great fun because they've, they've seen it all. And you were one of the biggest promoters in the early 90s. What was it that made the 90s such an exciting time for rave promoters and DJs, I suppose? You know, it's, it's, it's easy to talk about it in hindsight, but you've got to go back to 30 years ago or more um, when this thing started. Uh, and I don't think any of us knew what was going on. We just knew there was this amazing, exciting music coming out. And I think when I started, uh, the scene for that particular scene for me started, I think, in about 87, when it was the acid and the breaks coming through. Um, it was just no one knew what was going on. Everyone was like, what is this? Uh, the music was just so infectious. And it was homemade. You know, it was it was a bunch of uh, people in, in London, Liverpool, Manchester, making beats. Um, what they felt, they weren't producers as such. You know, it was eight-track tapes and stuff like that. The rawness of that music, um, I think, was just exciting. It, there was bangers coming out every single day and dodgy, as I say, dodgy white labels. It was all the excitement of everything that was going on. Um, was it was anything deliberate or was it all just sort of accidental and rolled into one another? Nothing was deliberate. Uh, you couldn't plan anything. You didn't know what it was. You can plan it now. You understand it now. But then we didn't know. It was being born. Uh, we was at the birth of this new uh, movement. It wasn't just music. It was the whole thing. People could club, go out clubbing. They didn't have to dress up. Uh, they danced like they was a lunatic and it didn't matter. It was just infectious uh, music in, in big clubs with big sound systems. It, it was, yeah, nothing deliberate. You, you, none of us knew what was going on. So you didn't necessarily set out to achieve anything? You were just having fun? To achieve, to have fun. I mean, for me, <laughs> for me as, a, as a DJ, I just want to see people rocking out in front of me i get into a zone no matter what event i'm doing if it's rave i'm in i'm in that zone and uh just from regular clubs that i used to do the, the one the rave clubs it was just a different vibe everyone was happy and smiling I, I don't think we were trying to achieve anything it was we just wanted to keep it going i think that's that that was the thing and there was a lot of great djs and producers that were just into it um, and whether they were producers or not, I mean, yeah, you know, people like you know, Kenny Kenon, you know, it's like, whoa, I've got to get into this. This is amazing. Uh, and, and yeah, 
Good question. Was it deliberate? It, it's, you know, I wish we could have planned it out. We may have kept it going even longer, but <laughs> a really good run. It had a good run. And, and, and Orange, as we mentioned, became one of the um, very popular raves, particularly in London in, in, that, in the early 90s. Um, what do you view as Orange's place in the 90s rave scene? Because it's not, I think we would, it's not a helter skelter dreamscape event in terms of those sort of very, very top, top ones that are always talked about now, but it was still, it was an amazing event. Um, you know, it's, it, it's funny when you talk about those other events, mm. uh, they didn't do eight or 900 events like I did. So, uh, although I wasn't doing a tent, although I did try it, um, we, we were at the forefront. At one point, I was doing a Friday at Camden, Saturday at the Rocket, and at the Astoria, and at Busby's, all in one weekend. So, I'm running four events one week. <laughs> uh, and I was running that for a couple of years, four events. Um, uh, and adding on every bank holiday, a hippodrome. So there's some weekends where Orange did five events. So I, I don't know where we are in the table of raves, but we, we got to be pretty much up there. But it wasn't about trying to be better than anybody else. That That's not what it was about. All the promoters, we was all mates. We knew each other. We, we worked together. We stayed away from each other's dates. Um, is that right? Because I've we've had some other promoters on in the past, um, Gary Viberlite in particular, who spoke about in their area they had an agreement to sort of do that and work together. But there were people who didn't do that in the same world, uh, and he he had sort of short thrift for them. But you your experience was not that. Your experience was very much people working together. Well, yeah, and and there was obviously some that didn't. There was obviously some that set up because. I might have been killing it at a venue, and they thought, well, he's turning a 1,000 people away. Let's do something next door. It never bothered me. Competition breeds market. You know, I'm a, I'm a businessman as well, and I understand that the more that's going on in that street, the more people come to that street. If you've got the better thing going on, they're going to come into yours. Uh, and for me, I always focused on uh, the event, not the money. It wasn't, you know, it was an earner. No getting away from it, but it was it wasn't about that. It was about giving the people a good time. Well, an earner, particularly as you were doing five raves a weekend, sometimes <laughs> must have been quite the earner. Uh, we're going to talk uh, more very shortly here about how you found your way into the rave scene. It was, an, an, a, as we've mentioned, a slightly strange route as you were a police officer at one point. Uh, but we'll talk about how you became a police officer, then you became a promoter, and then you became a police officer again very shortly here on Raw. So DJ Chris Paul and promoter, of course, uh, famously of the Orange events. You've always been musical. You are a musician. Um, even yes. as a child, you played various instruments. But at what point did you start DJing and, and how useful was your musical background to that? You know, I think a musical background when you're a DJ matters a lot. Uh, uh, um, it, it, with, with mixing, counting, understanding key changes and keys, I, I think it helps a lot. Um, but... Uh, you know, they just go hand in hand, really. I think I started at the youth club when I was 14, started DJing with a couple of decks that were separate. Um, and then I started doing the school things because 
you know, basically I couldn't dance. And if I wanted to meet girls, I had to do something. So, you know, <laughs> the DJ thing seemed like pretty good. Um, and and I, I must have had a good taste. My taste in music must appeal to other people because a, a lot of what I do is obviously what I'm feeling. Uh, and a lot of people seem to feel that. So I've, I've been successful. And, you know, it's, just, it's fun. And how did you turn it into a profession so to speak because i know that you became a police officer but you were you were you were professionally djing before you were a police officer in terms of you were paid to be a, a dj how, how did you how did that happen well i always wanted to be a copper since i was about 11 right i just did i i i don't know what it was it was just something i wanted to do uh, and make a career out of it um there's various reasons why people become police officers i mean i, I like helping people i thought i could make a difference uh, it was certainly different back then. You know, that we're talking about the 80s. You know, it, it isn't like it is now. But um, really, I was quite often thinking, I just can't wait to get back behind the decks because I felt the music was helping people more than what I was doing out on the street a lot of the time. Yeah, right. It brings people together. And, um, y- you know, it was, it was just such a buzz to DJ. But, I, you know, the police thing was fun. It was, yeah. So, so you wanted to be a police officer since you were eleven. What sort of role did you go into? Everyone has to go on the beat, of course. You would have started yeah. on the beat, but what what was the what what was your role in the Met? Walk the beat for a couple of years, just a PC. You know, it was it was uh, it was about eight or nine years I was in before the first record coming out. So, um, yeah, walking the beat. You know, it was it was a different time. Middle of the night, you're walking on your own. It's you, it's not like you have fears, like maybe I'm not sure I want to do it now <laughs> there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was just that airy car driver chasing people with lights and sirens. Who doesn't want to do that? Come on, Tom. Well, it may, I mean, yes, it must have been quite fun at times. What was the sort of – Can you? is there one any, any mad experiences that you had as a police officer that particularly stick in your mind all these years on? Well, lots. You know, lots of fun, stupid, funny things. But I think the one thing that sticks in my mind is uh, my first day uh, when I qualified, I was off probation. I was out allowed to walk the beat uh, on my own. Uh, it was the winter. It was uh, I was in Brentford. I was attached to Brentford Police Station. I walked out on the beat and about 20 minutes later, I found a dead body. Uh, oh, so, wow. It, yeah, an elderly gentleman had, had collapsed and slipped in the snow, and and I, I come across it uh, at the bottom in an alley. Um, you know, obviously you try all the the life saving things, but but twenty minutes out first day, yeah. it's like whoa. <laughs> so um, that that was different, and it was yeah. quite a baptism a baptism of fire. Where at that point were you thinking, what have I? What have I done here? What have I trained for? Because the emotional toll it kind of takes, you get used mm. to things like that, but it takes a while to get used to things like that. Well, I don't think you ever get used to things like that. Yeah. Um, but I really got, it, it really affected me. He was on his way home. He just bought Christmas cards for his family and he had slipped, had a heart attack and that, that kind of thing. And uh, I was first on scene. You do what you can to save somebody's life, but, but mm. he was blue. He was already gone, but it, just, you know, that was twenty minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, did it, did it, imp- did it improve? Uh, 
did it improve the job? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Obviously, you get used to it. But that was that was quite an introduction. In uh, I'd never really, you know, you don't see dead bodies often. No. I don't no. know how, you know, it's not that to find one in an alley is um, no. Bit of a but, shock. Things got better. Yeah. But you were you were you were also DJing at the same time, weren't you? But oh. it, it was it was before. Obviously, this was before the rave scene came around because you stopped being a police officer at uh, nineteen eighty eight. So it was before that. So what sort of clubs were you playing in at the time, and 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 what sort of music were you playing? Well, I was I was already a a, a fairly big name in the jazz funk scene. I was in a scene already, uh, and the jazz funk and soul scene, the Caster Weekenders, Press That in Weekenders. Um, soul and funk nights. I was working with Chris Hill, Sean French, Robbie Vincent. Uh, at Bogarts would have Sundays, Chris Hill, Jeff Young. Um, uh, I was working with Pete Tong every Friday, resident. Um, it was it was a jazz funk scene, and that was an amazing scene, not dissimilar to the rave scene with the following and the love for the music and the festivals and the all-dayers and the weekenders. Uh, so I was a whole part of that scene, and it was amazing, as well as, you know, doing mainstream clubs. But I was always playing my kind of jazz funk at the mainstream clubs because it worked in London. You know, people didn't need to hear crap music. Um, so it, it's it's not like the, the pop stuff that we hear these days. It was it was a whole jazz funk scene. So I was my name was on posters. I was doing weekend. You know, so I was already living a great life doing five nights a week um all over the place how did you fit how did you do that and also work as a police officer i mean it must have been exhausted depends depends on the shift um depends on the shift it it wasn't it wasn't so it wasn't so easy uh with shifts but you know when i was when i was doing the police stuff i was doing the police stuff when i was a dj i was doing the dj that the lines never crossed. And what did your what did your um, your colleagues think though? They must have been really enjoyed your your stories of all the interesting <laughs> people you were meeting and all the adoration yeah. of your, your if you know giving you a big name DJ that sort of stuff. I never talked about it. Oh really? No, it was a set. It was separate. Never talked about it. But but did not they not see you and know that you were yes. a DJ and not try yeah, to talk yeah. to you about it? Yeah, yeah, they were just refused. It, it was you know you get the odd eye out. I saw you on the this. <laughs> on that poster or how was that night and you know i I come yeah it was cool it was good but uh you know it was two two different things and i i kept them separate it needed to be separate okay um were clubbers surprised when they found out that you were also a police officer they didn't know i mean (laughs) it was again it wasn't something uh um i advertised it wasn't it wasn't a big deal i did that i liked it uh I'm I'm a DJ. I do this. I like it. I don't I, I don't bring that to here, and I don't right. that there. Well, you were also began playing Acid House to mainstream crowds as well. Um, how did you end up spinning Acid House? Given you were a main, relatively mainstream DJ playing, you know, big I'll sort t- of. I'll tell you that. Club. I'll tell you that story. I was DJing at the Broadway Boulevard in Ealing uh, in, in about 1986, uh, early early '87. And the manager of Candle Palace, Dave Chipping, came down and he uh, he said to me, listen, we, we want to change our Friday nights at Camden. Are you available? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll come down and have a look. And um, what they wanted to do was was just change the feel of the night. 
uh, it wasn't overly successful. Uh, the music wasn't right. And I think they wanted a kind of a Sharon and Tracy thing. I think that's what they had in mind. They saw Broadway Boulevard was packed and the bars were packed. So they thought, we'll have some of this. So I got to Camden and I started kind of playing some commercial stuff to clear out the the crowd that was there and then kind of start again. And then Acid House come along. We're talking 87. I'm hearing these Acid tunes. And at the time, I was uh, doing a lot of back and forth from New York. Um, I, I'd started doing some production work uh, out there because the track was out. Expansions 86 had come out. So I was working in New York. I was working in Blaze with Blaze Studios and Night Writers and Vicky Martin and Adiva. Uh, and I was picking up all this music in the record stores, which was this kind of acid house and breakbeat, uh, Frankie Bone stuff, Marshall Jefferson, all that stuff. And I'm bringing it back and playing it in Camden. Um, and you got to remember Camden Palace, that place, two big stacks, sound system, a theatre. Uh, it just worked. It just worked. And um, I, it, I thought, this is it. This is amazing. This is. I was watching the response of people coming in and accepting this, that they didn't know this music, nor did I. I mean, I'm almost, I'm playing it thinking, I hope four minutes in this gets, this is okay. You know, it's just, just white labels, imports, mainly imports at that time. But it was, people responded. I think within about six weeks, we had 2000 people in there because people were just, well, I was playing at mainstream clubs as well a lot and throwing in the acid house there and watching the response. And people were really feeling it, you know, and the, the, and the break stuff. Um, and I think it, it opened a lot of people's ears to a different type of music. Because- well, yeah. Do, do you think that you created a load of new ravers, given that you were playing this sort of new, what would become rave music to a mainstream crowd? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I would take a little bit of credit for that um, because yeah, I was, I was out, you know, Volts in Kingston, Options in Kingston, Eros in Enfield, these first leisure clubs that have got two and a half thousand people in, you know. Um, and, it, you know, it's commercial, but it was commercial house and garage. It's cool stuff. You d- didn't have to play shit music, you know. So I was able to program in acid and breaks and stuff that they're not hearing normally. And they know where I am. They know I'm at Camden. People were coming in. And just imagine, you're a regular first leisure club with all the neon lights and all the thing. And then on a Friday, you get to Camden. There's a queue all the way around the corner, like 500 people. And you're thinking, hang on a minute. I never queued up for Eros or or anything like that. And you walk in that place. And there's 2,500 ravers just doing that which was the acid dance, I think, back then. Uh, Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing for people. Everyone's happy. Uh, the music was just taking people over, just getting in. The, you could see how they were dancing. The music was in their soul. And, and I think once people saw that and you see that, it's just, well, I'll have some of that. And also drugs helped. Apparently. Apparently. They always did. From, you know, from Woodstock to... You know, people are always going to take drugs. Uh, And I guess the ecstasy was the thing at that time. And, yeah, didn't do any harm, I guess, 
were you the... seeing were you seeing a change in people's um obviously you've said you've changed uh, people's personas and the way they were dancing and all that sort of stuff but also in their dress and in their that was the thing yeah wear what you want just go out it wasn't about what you look like it was i'm gonna try and wear a bright colorful t-shirt and bright colorful uh trousers and i mean there's a picture of me djing with the worst trousers on ever i try and <laughs> pop that bit out but we didn't care. I mean, it looked like I was in my pajamas at Camden Palace, 3,000 ravers, and I, it looks like I'm in a T-shirt and pajamas. I mean, it, was, it wasn't about that. It wasn't pretentious. It, it was just uh, everyone was having fun. Maybe it was the drugs, but uh, it was definitely the music. Definitely. You, you say um, people aren't pretentious, but I have interviewed and spoken to and know a lot of people from the rave scene. And there can be some pretentious people. And I was wondering whether how, how people who, who were <clears throat> perhaps too cool for school uh, responded to seeing you coming and playing at these events that they'd sort of they felt like, well, we've created this scene and you've come from the mainstream crowd. Did you ever get any uh, any of that sort of feeling from anybody? I created the scene. I create the scene along with other people, a groove rider, Fabio. We, we were doing it in 87. Um, it, it, it's, it's, well, I, I can't say I created the scene, but I was one of the creators, uh, pioneers of it. I was bringing that music to Camden Palace. There was nothing else going on. Camden Palace was just a, they did an indie night on a Tuesday. They did some showering and training. The Camden Palace was just another club. I turned that into something different with what we were doing. And I will take a bit of credit for that because if you're not on top of it and you don't see these things uh, and jump on them at the time, you're going to miss the boat. So um, I don't think because of Camden Palace, I don't think anyone could ever look at me and say, well, you know, you was just DJing at Stringfellows yesterday. What gives you the right to come into this warehouse? Um Everything gave me the right to go into there. And so you left the police force in 88, a year after the Acid House movement started and you started playing these tracks. Why? You, you can't have two jobs in the Metropolitan Police. You're a policeman or you're not. But I thought you, you had two jobs prior to that. Well, it didn't matter until I was on Soul Train, Solid Soul. Once you're on the telly, it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> Post, posters are fine, but the telly, that's something else. It's all over for that. Chief Skipper <laughs> said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be a pop star if I can. Cheers, <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. But, yeah, once once Expansions 86 blew up and it was like number one billboard dance chart, and I think we got to 50 or something in the pop chart, but at the time we couldn't get dance music into the charts. So to get into the top 50 was what an achievement for us back then. I mean, Paul Harcastle was coming out with rainforest and then he had a result with 19, but it was very difficult for us to, to get into that scene. But yeah, I, uh, you, you you can't, I couldn't be on telly and, and then start making a beat. That's probably fair. Uh, and, And what did your bosses say? Did they, were they sad to see you go? I don't think anyone, I mean, you know, you leave, next one comes along. (laughs) I mean, I was working at that time, the last four years with community involvement. So I was working basically with the community, with kids, with the schools. We'd go around to each school's uniformed offices and put a disco on for the kids. 
under under 11 to to engage kids with police departments and um dance with the cops and i've met the met kind of thing and it was it, so i even when i was in the police i managed to get a detail that involved djing it was <laughs> it might have been one in the afternoon to a bunch of nine-year-olds but it, it's it better ma- than i've ever done <laughs> But it, but it mattered. So I, I think they missed that because that got so huge. Um, it was we almost had to stop it. Uh, that started getting ridiculous because then all the schools were calling us saying, "When can we have the policemen down to the kids want to dance with the cops again?" So it, it was it was a great time. It was a very important time, and I, I enjoyed that. So, but yeah. it felt like but it felt like something special was brewing didn't it really in terms of your other job uh with the actual djing uh, rather than to the kids uh in terms of that that sort of acid house movement did it feel like something you're like this is this is a thing now this is definitely something happening exactly that i mean almost exactly what you just did i mean what is this is a thing almost exactly that whereas the jazz funk scene um was still very new it was still very exciting that music had been around for years and, and formed from soul to jazz funk and funk. So, uh, but, but the rave scene, it was being born. You, you could see this new music coming out that sounded different to everything else. And you couldn't wait to get your hands on the next uh, piece of vinyl and see what it was going to sound like. What sounds were they going to use? What samples are they, they grabbing? It, it was very, very exciting and very new. Uh, and it was being born and it was trying to find its feet. But it, it took, well, it never really found its feet, which is why all, there's so many tracks that are the same, but they're not the same. I don't know. Does that make sense? It's it's, it's just, <clears throat> you know, the BPMs, like house music is around 125. You know, it, it's a little up and it's a little down. Rave music went from 122 to 160. It, you, you never, you just, it was just exciting times. And and we were with the acid and people, the dancing. And I hadn't seen that dancing before. I hadn't heard the music before. I hadn't seen people dressed in dungarees in a club. You can't get in to a first leisure club with dungaree. You have shoes on and a shirt. And, and they're coming in, like as I say, like they've just gone to the local Walmart, which is, you know, that's probably an American joke. but Big supermarket. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like Walmart's, you know, it's just people go there in their pajamas to get stuff. And, and, uh, but it, it was it was just fun and it was just free. I, I, I think the freedom of people to come down and just dance and uh, uh, didn't matter what they looked like. I think it was amazing. And so you were DJing and also making music, but then also promoting as well. What do you think is uh, it, it is about you that makes you... A, a particularly good promoter uh i i care about uh, the show i i care about the people um i don't care about me uh it it's really about i i want them to walk in and be shocked i want them to walk in and go whoa what the, the lights the production i always overspent on production i always overspent on djs um it, it was just about you give people a, just a brilliant show. I overspent on security. I, I, I was very conscious of, of people waiting in queues and, and 
getting that, wrong. Is that the police officer part of element of probably, your? Yeah, probably. Security was very important to me that people felt safe. I, I, I felt. I don't know about other people and if they did it for money. I mean, we, we all, we got to earn a living. But for me, it was about, I want to make sure these people are safe. These people are coming down. They're giving me money to come in and be entertained. I need to entertain them. I need to give them a show. I need to give them the lights, lasers, the big sound systems over in the rocket. I had 28K of F and Martin F2. It was way too much. <laughs> Um, but it rattled your teeth. Uh, you know, it, it, it was just about the show. I, I, I think people felt safe. They knew Orange. It was happy. Um, it was just me. There wasn't a bunch of chiefs running it. So when I said this is going to happen, it happened. I think people trusted they got their value for money. Uh, and why did you call it Orange? <clears throat> I needed a name that was uh, recognisable. And I'll tell you how this came up. I was watching a documentary. I don't know what it was. And they were talking about shell, petrol. And on it, they said, and the shell symbol, you don't, you just put the symbol and it, it's the word. You only have to see it and you know exactly what it is. So that's why I thought, well, orange, uh, always a favourite colour. Uh, and I thought, well, orange, you can have something that's orange, you can have the fruit, or you can have the word. Um, so I could put a flyer out that was just orange and put rave on it, which I did do. Uh, so it was a, a, an easy way to identify the rave. Orange. Orange is happy. It's a happy color. Um, all on about the vitamin C back then. You, you know, it, it's just, I don't know. That That's how orange. It was a purely an advertising uh, a branding thing I thought carefully about. And yeah, you just see an orange, you know it's me. You see the word, you know it's me. You see the orange, you know, it's it was just so easy to do flyers. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was doing a lot of flyers, I was doing a lot of gigs, so it needed to be easy. So. Yeah. And uh, did you enjoy promoting? Because some promoters I speak to, uh, they might say they enjoyed it, but I, the reality, I think, is probably it was actually quite stressful, and that's they're looking at that through rose-tinted spectacles. It's stressful. Yeah, it's incredibly stressful. Um, it's uh, You put an event on, you're standing at the door, doors open at nine, it's eight o'clock. You're thinking, well, I've just spent 12 grand. I hope they come. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's incredibly stressful. There's that. There's incidents that happen that you have to deal with. Um, it, it's uh, always that worry is, are they going to come? You know, this ain't a movie, Field of Dreams, you build it, they'll come. No, you've got to put 20,000 flyers out. You've got to stand outside at 6 o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold giving out flyers, which I got other people to do. Um, I can't do that. But I Well, why, why would you? I mean, but, really, if you're running it, don't fly her, surely. <laughs> but, uh, but I did do it. But it, it, And did I enjoy it? Uh, yeah, when it works. Uh, they all worked. Um, yeah, I guess I enjoy I don't know if you've got time to enjoy it. I enjoyed DJing. I enjoyed being there. I enjoyed the atmosphere, the energy. Uh, I enjoyed all of that. 
printing flyers, deliver. Oh, no, I didn't enjoy all, all that. Delivering flyers, getting them out, getting tickets to the record shops, and no, you you don't enjoy work. Who does? Um, but the ultimate was the event, uh, the people's faces walking in when the when I used to have the curtains closed. When I did the Astoria, I made them bring down the curtain. At the Rocket, I had the curtains closed. I made people come in and wait two hours before I gave them something. But for me, it was about the, a show. So I'd wait and I'd wind them all up, wind them all up, and then it'd be packed. And then we go, Orange, are you ready? And with the curtains that open, there'd be like Carl Cox there or some hype or someone. And it's incredible. I mean, the it's just amazing, the energy. And for, for that, I lived for that, the, the night. We'll talk more about that very shortly. Plus your DJing and a whole lot more, including how you DJed for the Queen Mother. The, the mind boggles. We're going to find out. We really hope you're enjoying yet another one of Raw's in-depth interviews about the rave scene, which we are proud to say are now all curated into the British Library Sound Archive. All of us here at Raw HQ love how much you love what we do and your generous one-off donations have been a huge help in covering our initial costs. But we're now a team of five putting in a combined 80 hours a week for no wages with big plans to expand further and so our costs are going up. As such, we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing as you've seen us do since our launch in July 2020. First up, go and check out our brand new website. It's rawuk.com where you can find loads of cool extra content and you can grab Raw's first ever range of merchandise. That's rawuk.com for our new flashy website. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can support us financially to create more content on an ongoing basis for less than the price of an oat milk cappuccino. Plus, you get great perks in return. Head to patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods. That's patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods to see exactly what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is basically the same. Uh, or if you're not asked about a membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or a repeat donation, then head to our website and click the PayPal link. A reminder of that new website URL yet again, rawuk.com. Big love and respect to you all. Please keep supporting us. Hope you enjoy the rest of the app. Friday the 20th of August 2021, a new event, Return to Source, celebrating 90s rave, hardcore, jungle, happy hardcore, drum and bass and techno, touches down at Sukit MC in Digbeth, Birmingham. We have Fusion South Coast legend DJ Druid, Quest and Fiber Optics DJ Fallout, the uprising northern legend that is DJ Paulo and London Town's final trickster playing his first happy hardcore set in over 18 years. Tickets are priced at only £14. Just search Facebook and Eventbrite for Return to Source Rave. So we're here with the DJ and promoter Chris Paul. He promoted Orange, of course. We we, we talked, Chris, uh, a bit earlier about your love of DJing, and that was your your, your primary passion. Uh, your peak in that sort of early uh, early part of the '90s when you were promoting your own events. You'd have been playing at those events. You'd have been playing at other people's events as well. How many gigs would you be playing a week? Uh, I think I used to have. No, I didn't have Mondays off because that was string pillows. I think I had Tuesdays off. <laughs> so how many is that in a week yeah would five you, six a week but you'd be playing multiple nights or would you just play one so it was like 
No, I'll be, well, actually, I'll be like Tuesday at Eros for the student night, Wednesday at Vaults in Kingston for a student night, Thursday, uh, probably Hollywood's in Romford at some point, Friday, Camden, Saturday. Before I did a story on Rocket, I was doing, I was at the Hippodrome. I was the, the main DJ at the Hippodrome on Saturday night playing to 3,000 tourists. But fortunately, and, and the Friday night I'm playing rave music, when it was just Camden in the early days, 88, 89, I'm playing rave music and acid house and I go to the Hippodrome and I'm playing Ride on Time by Black Box to 3,000 tourists. But I can still play the uh, acid and, and some breakbeat in there. Uh, it, it was a very European kind of crowd. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was weird just doing all these different different nights, but... I, I, I'm a DJ. It's it's just what I want to do. I, I, I love it. And what was your favourite rave to play at apart from your own? Camden Palace was was I can't. There wasn't anything that matches Fridays at Camden Palace. I don't think. Why? Any, uh, because it was born there. Because it was something new that wasn't happening, and it it, it created itself. It. it merged into something amazing and the, the the ravers were incredible just the people that would come to that club the music i was able to play um the whole energy that you could feel you could cut it with a knife it nothing matched camden palace all, all the other raves i did was still brilliant but there was something special about early days at camden because it, it was being born and every week it was exciting to play something new and everyone coming in was what is this? They didn't have phones. There was YouTube and, and, and all that. It was people lining up at the DJ box, trying to get names of records uh, and holding tapes out. Please do a tape. Please do it. It was incredible. Camden Pies Friday night finished at two 30, you know, cause they were set up to be a, like we would call a Sharon and Tracy club. It, it just turned into a rave. Um, it, yeah, as you said before, it wasn't deliberate. It was nothing wrong with a 2.30 finish, Chris. I mean, that's uh, getting late for me I these days. <laughs> you did DJ one particular, well, two particularly special gigs, which, which we mentioned at the, at the top. And uh, I'm interested to know what you play in a gig like this, but you DJed at the Queen Mother's 90th birthday. Right. That was at the Grosvenor House Hotel. Um, what does a rave DJ play for the Queen Mother who's 90? I know. I know. I know. <laughs> it, a little strange. Um, here's the thing. I was working at uh, Stringfellows at the time, and um, there was this big uh, birthday event um, for the Queen Mother. And they wanted uh, Peter Stringfellow got involved in that and uh, with some other things, some cont contributions or, or whatever. And they wanted a DJ as well to play for an hour. Um, but they had the Royal Ballet there as well. And they had all sorts of things going on. So it wasn't like it was, you know, a party. It was an hour's DJing uh, as part of this whole thing. Uh, what did I play? obvious disco safe um stuff i can't even remember but it was fun it was fun could you see the queen mother while you were djing i i, I couldn't really well so you I didn't wanted... know whether she liked it or not 
Um, she loved. I'm sure she loved it. Of course she did. <laughs> um, I'm sure she loved it. And at the time, obviously, it was. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it was still Lady Die then. I don't think it was Princess Die then. Um, Fergie, and you know, it, it it was a time when you know they was the royal family was kind of out and about a little bit uh, then. And there was a an, an event, a yacht club event that we did that was, I think, Lady Die or one of them was a on the board or something like that. So I got in because I, I got clearance, MI5 clearance quite easily. Um, and obviously you, you can't just... Which, which the same can't be said for a lot of rave DJs in the early 90s. <laughs> oh, no. I might not have been on the top. <laughs> I might have been like that. Go, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, there's a long list you could tick off, really, of people there's who probably didn't pass like, security clearance. I could have been number 78 on that list. And, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, we're good. Get in. So um, I don't know if I was picked for for any particular reason. Right place, right time, but it looks good. And now I guess I can use what's on the cornflakes packet, you know, by royal appointment. I guess I can use that, right? Yeah, absolutely, you can. Again, okay. again, again. So, so you played for the 90th birthday of the Queen Mother, but you also played later for Lady Di. Was it was that was at the, at the Hippodrome, right? And again, yeah, was it the same sort same sort of music? Was it? I mean, you didn't play any rave. What I'm asking is, did you play any rave music to royalty? Yeah, I always played rave music within anything that I was doing. Always would put it in there. It was. Brilliant. It was. It by then it was in my blood. I couldn't do anything without throwing a couple of rave tunes in there. It was. It was. I, the excitement of that music, I just needed to play it to people. So, do you, um, do you remember what tunes that you did play, rave tunes that you did play for either the Queen Mother or Princess Di or Lady Di? She I was remember then? what I played on Friday <laughs> at, at the Orange Stream, which we we do every week. Uh, no, I, I no, I fair enough. What a, what a shame <laughs> that would have been. I, I just I'd love up. to know what what their favourite rave tunes were. <laughs> <laughs> um, you also went on Top of the Pops as well. What a remarkably varied career you've had. That was with Isotonic in uh, 1992. You can be seen playing the keyboard at the side. Was that fun? Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a real fun story that goes with that, if you want to, if you want to hear that. I mean... We love uh, stories here. Yes, please. So I, I, I did Isotonic. Um, and I've had, I had a few records out. I've been signed to Tommy Boy. Uh, I had a couple of releases with Tommy Boy, a couple on EMI. Um, and then I did I did the isotonic thing and we just threw it out. I knocked up different strokes and has the Labisa, the A and B side. It must have only taken me about five or six hours. That's how we did rave music. You did it. It was exciting. You had to get all this stuff down, uh, get it pressed and get it out there. Um, and it blew up. It absolutely blew up. And I remember Pete, Pete Tong contacted my mate who was kind of fronting it for me because um, I was doing other things. I was working with DNA, uh, uh, um, the Tom Steiner thing, and I was doing other lots of different things under different names. And he said, Pete wants to sign it. Uh, and he, uh, and uh, he said, but, you, you know, he reckons he's going to get it cheap because he doesn't know it's you, so we won't tell him. So I remember the meeting we went up to uh, – went to London Records and I'm sitting uh, out in the waiting room and Pete comes in and goes, oh, Chris, what are you doing now? I'm just hanging out. And then he sees Henry, he says, all right, Henry, come in, let's talk about a deal. And then when I got up, Pete said, it's you, isn't it? I said, yeah. <laughs> it's going to cost me, isn't it? I said, yes, yes, mate, it is. Uh, so um, 
it was yeah uh, that came out and it blew up and, and, and at that point the rave scene's now getting on the radio very very exciting um and then i don't know how but tongi got me on top of the pops he said we got a top of the pops for your next thursday so uh, that that was just a mental day just a dream and you grow up as a kid watching top of the pops and we all think oh i wish i'd love to be on top of the pops um so I, I wanted to be on top of the pops. And you wanted to be a police officer. Top of the cops. Top of the yeah. cops. So uh, I'm, I'm wasted. That was an interesting day. So we got that, and, and it was at Elstree where they filmed um, EastEnders. EastEnders. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the canteen with Dirty Den and Angie and everyone at canteen time. It's surreal. It was surreal. Uh, for me um and also it's the bbc they don't allow advertising but i needed to get my orange rave out there somewhere isotonic wasn't orange raves but i put up all the orange banners with the orange man and orange i even got my best mate at the time sean to dress up as the orange man and dance around nearly killed him um so we were advertising orange raves on the bbc they didn't click they thought it was all part of isotonic, and, and it was uh, huge, huge. Didn't do us any harm at all. Really? Uh, did it? Ha- did it? Did it actively help? To, did you get more numbers in after that? More numbers because now we're now, now we're on. It's kind of mainstream, and and people are seeing isotonic, and they know the track, but they're seeing the orange and that man. I'd established that brand, that orange man, so people knew what that was, and it it. it got everyone talking and, and things just started to blow up even more from them. Um, and it, it was absolutely mental. And, okay. and then, of course, another story is that the phone company come along. I mean, they didn't do me any harm at all either. Orange phones. Yeah, well, then they're, they're no longer the case. I was actually thinking that earlier. I was Because I was when you were talking about um, how it's a great brand, you're like, well, might have been quite annoying that Orange came along because then anytime you well, in a Google era, for, particularly obviously not back then, but in Google era, you go, it's going to be them that have come up first, and you're going to come way down. So that's actually not a Absolutely. great thing. But maybe at that time it might have been different. Absolutely, but you turn on the Cup final that year, right? And all around Wembley it says Orange, 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 Orange. Yeah, but it's orange. not your rave. All, all around Orange, 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 and that's all it said. It is Orange, just Orange, Orange, all the way around Wembley. And everyone's like calling me up saying, that must have cost you a fortune. I'm saying, yeah, it was. What, no, they did not do that. Man, that. And, and we, did, we did a massive, I used to do these massive bank holidays events at the Hippodrome. I was the only promoter allowed to use the Hippodrome. We used oh. to take all the furniture out. I used to put another 30K in, on top of their 30K in there. We'd ram that place out. Uh, uh, and... There was one Sunday, it was uh, Leicester Square, and there, there's an orange blimp flying over at Leicester Square. <laughs> they had orange, and they had a blimp above Leicester Square. I wish I had an iPhone. I mean, I can't prove <laughs> any of this. I can't prove any of this. This orange blimp is flying around London, advertising orange, and there's billboards everywhere that just would have orange on it i don't know if you remember but it, they did a great advertising campaign where they weren't saying orange telecom or anything like that they was just putting up orange and people was going what what is that of course the ravers are thinking wow wow he's putting up billboards now 
But, but how does anyone find? So how does anyone? So nowadays, if you like got orange, you Google it and you'd find it, right? But back in the day, there was no internet, so, so people would see this orange thing happening, orange, orange, orange. How would they then go to connect the dots between that and your night? Even though it wasn't, there were no dots to connect. There was no dots to connect. But if you was a raver, you connected it, right? <laughs> right. You just connected it. If you were, you didn't know what it was. You didn't care. It's oranges. Are we growing oranges now? Oh, and what is it? No one knew what it was. But right. if you were a raver or in the scene or a little bit in the scene, you connected that. And it was, you was completely wrong. Did you but, ever have any? Were you not trademarked? Could you have? Uh... I can't really trademark a fruit. It's very mm. difficult to trademark something like that. And at the time, I didn't care. There was no internet. There was no Google and all that. Bit, or was there? I don't. I don't even remember. There wasn't any of that. So if someone, I mean, there was other raves that came up using the name. I, I'm not going to mention them all now, but there was plenty that came up. And I don't know. Couldn't you think of a different fruit? There was a few of them. But, um, you know, it was. I don't know why I wouldn't, if there was of something, I wouldn't call myself that same thing. I don't know why they did. Clockwork but, Orange. Well, Clockwork Orange, completely different music. Completely different music. Um, I, I like the whole idea of Clockwork Orange. Uh, I'm not sure I would want to associate myself with that particular film. Um, but... Yeah, there was them. There was Oranges Don't Dance. There was a few. There wasn't just them. I mean, Clockwork Orange are huge, but hmm. you know, I'm running now. They're running now. I'm on Centre Force. They're on Centre Force. People know the difference. Some hey. are confused, but you turn up at an Orange, a Clockwork Orange, you're going to know it ain't anything to do with me. And if no. you, the uh, same the other way around. But yeah, they're they're great. I know them. You know, no, no, I didn't mind. I don't. I didn't okay. care. Really. Okay. Um, and in terms of uh, your promotion of Orange, who are your favourite DJs to book and why? You know, I used to have a lot of the same guys, the top guys, uh, Fab Groove, Randall, uh, Hype, Gash, uh, Seduction. Um, I, I mean, we were all mates. Uh, they were big in the scene. Um it's very difficult to have a favourite DJ. I, I, I did enjoy watching Hype, um, but the mastery of Groove Rider is unmatched. Like Fabio and Groove Rider, them to the programming, uh, the selection. I mean, they're all great. I, I, I can't. It's difficult. But you know, when I talk about Fabio and Groove Rider as DJs in general, and what about in terms of reliability and all? Because because when you're a promoter, it's not just about their DJing or their tune selection, is it? It's about whether they're going to turn up, or whether they're going to be reliable, whether they're going to be half cut, all that sort of stuff. Who were the real best ones in, in, in overall? All of them, right? All of them. If someone didn't turn up, it was, it was they were all very professional. I mean, right. there was there was a, a, one or two. Turned up a half cup, <laughs> and I wouldn't put them on. Uh, right. I, I wouldn't let them go on, and um, I've taken DJs off before. Really? Yeah, yeah. I would take them off if if they're not doing uh, 
they're not doing what I feel is right. I'll take them off. I'm a DJ. I understand. I'm watching. I understand. I don't just put them on and go, and, uh, if there's an issue, I'll take them off. But I was never worried about someone being late or, or not turning up. I'll go on. It, it was. DJ Chris Paul on for the fourth time tonight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing a back to back with Chris Paul. But everyone was uh, reliable, professional, and they killed it. Every, every when, you, when you've taken people off, how do they react to being taken off? It must be incredibly embarrassing. Well, it is what it is, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to be offensive. Uh, i got 2,000 people out there, and if they're not feeling it, and you're they're, not... Well, they're, 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 they're the ones you're ultimately responsible for, aren't yeah, you? Not, you know, they're, they're you're not part. feeling it. It's not about egos here. It's not about egos. It's about if it, you're on a different path for some reason, I'm not feeling it. I might be wrong, but it's my rave and I'm going to make that ultimate decision. So uh, I, I don't want the guy, you know, I'll make an excuse. He weren't, I, you know, he's uh, had to deal with something or, you know, it wasn't like he was shit. I've taken him off. It, it wasn't about that. There was, I wanted to keep the continuity of the happy and, and everything going. And if someone was going on a journey that I didn't think was right, I'd, I'd take them off. Okay. And what about MCs? Because uh, they, they really came to the fore as the 90s went on. What's your view on MCs? <laughs> oh. Um, <laughs> I personally don't book MCs, really. I, I don't like them. Uh, um, I don't like people chatting all over that music. It's about the music for me. Uh, there's some MCs, uh, MCMC, uh, we've been mates for years. It, it, brilliant, brilliant. Knows how to hype the crowd um, for me. I mean, all the MCs are good. I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about them. It's for me, it was more about the music uh, than the MCing. Um, okay, and, and you've hosted events at loads of venues. Which ones? Uh, you've mentioned Camden as a, as a particular favourite. Which others did you were real favourites of yours? All, all the ones that I did were were favourites. That it's very difficult because I was very particular about where I went, and I was always trying to go to places that hadn't been used. Um, with the Rocket, when I started at the Rocket. Uh, there have been a couple of events there, the Pirate Club, uh, Vision On. Uh, so that was a fairly new venue. So it didn't have any bad uh, vibes going with it, the, the, you know, baggage that come along with that venue. Um, the Astoria was established uh, and uh, and it was uh, still early days. So that that was special. But for me, the Hippodrome events were just... Um, just to be doing a rave in the middle of a commercial central London club. I always thought they were pretty spectacular. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, what is, is there a single event that stands out as your greatest success? No, I'd say I must have done 800 events. I've blur. It, it, uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised, to be fair. I mean, that is a lot of events. Is that right? You've actually promoted 800 events. I mean, well, that... I did Camden every Friday night for from 87 till 95. So add them up. And then every Saturday at the Rocket 
for about three years, another 150 there. Um, and then uh, the Astoria probably... 500 now, yeah, go on. Yeah. The Astoria um, probably another 50 there uh, and Busby's. And then we did, I know I did 22 Hippodrome events. Uh, I don't know, is my maths out? I it might know. be slightly under 800, but it's not a million miles away. So actually, you know what, not. just just, just a, go with it. It's fine. It was a lot. And there, <laughs> there was others that I was doing, um, you know, I used to do bank holiday. I, I used to start the Hippodrome sometimes at 4 a.m. till midday. No one's done that. No one had, no one had done anything like that. I mean, they do breakfast club. I'm doing a full-on rave. We wait for the Hippodrome to close at 3. They kick all the tourists out. We would go in, move all the furniture. We had a team, uncover all our sound system that had been set up during the day, have all our backdrops up and everything ready to go, start our lighting. We'd have an hour. Um, and we'd have a 1,000 people in Leicester Square at 4 a.m. queuing up. Wow. It, those were crazy. Yeah, that's wicked. And were there any events that absolutely fell on their ass? You know, I did one event. I did a big outdoor event, Essex Arena, the greatest show on earth. I had this thing planned, 10,000 people, two big tops, uh, fun fair, full on. Um, and uh, I had the Prodigy live, Baby D live, huge lineup. Um, and, and that, there was a bunch of circumstances completely out of my control that caused that to fail. I needed 10,000 people. I ended up with just over 3,000 people. You know, we opened up, peak cars are coming in, there's a big traffic jam, it all went off, and then the M25 that day happened to have had an accident. There was a huge problem on the M25, like every day, right, I guess, the M25. Um, and then their security was arguing with my security, and then it was all going, and it was like, really? Can we just get these people in? Can we just get these people in? Um, you know, we got about 3,000, just over 3,000 people in. And I was working with the police there, Essex police, because you have to. I had to pay them. It cost me 12,000 quid. Uh, I, you have to pay for the police. Uh, they don't do anything for you. They do. It's just traffic control and, and the police are there. You have to pay for them. Um, I had a really good relationship with them. But then the, 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 in, um, the superintendent who was in charge said, OK, it's 11 o'clock. We're going to uh, all units shut down uh, all the exits. And I said, what? What's going on? And, well, we can't let anyone in after 11. <laughs> really? Anyone? Should anyone have told me that? So um, they closed all the off ramps. Uh, that was that. Why? I don't know. There must have been some licensing law within the Essex arena. May have had a bar. Uh, the, the license in this little bar might not have allowed people in after. I don't know. They used something. Uh, I felt stitched up, uh, to be honest. I felt like I was stitched up. And um, you'd put in, um, how much do, would you put in for an event of that magnitude? Um, I, I think you talk, I think it cost me around 75,000. I think I'd laid out, you lay, you lay the money out up front for that big tops. You can't say I'll pay you on the, on the day, you know, no. these big top, you give them 15 grand, you give them 10 grand for the other one. 
you book the fun fare and, and, and security, enormous cost and the site venue and the police and the toilets. <laughs> and how, did you, how did you react when the police said, that's it, we can't let any more, more in and you'd have only got 3,000, you need 10,000? Um, how would you react, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody's uh, different, aren't they? <laughs> um, yeah. You can't argue with, I understand the law. And uh, if a superintendent says uh, we're shining at 11, they're shining at 11. Uh, no one's coming in. No one's coming in. There's nothing you can do. There's, there's, you, don't, I, you know, don't argue with, with the police. Don't, don't argue with the law. Um, and I said, really, I'm, I'm going to lose everything. Uh, you know, I wasn't. But it, it wasn't good. I was going to lose a ton of money. And I said, what, what can we do about that? He said, well, unfortunately, that's the licensing or the law. So I forget. It was a long time ago. And he said, oh, all right, I'll tell you, I'll give you another half an hour. So uh, he gave Here me another come. half an hour, which was. <laughs> give me another uh, seven hours. How's that? <laughs> but it, but it, was, it was at that point I, uh, I, was, I, I was completely defeated. Defeated. And um, people have a great time. Sorry, go on. Great time. People had a great time. Okay. You got to remember, it, I was on. A, I was on a space that um, with ten. It, you could probably get thirty thousand people in there, but ten thousand people is a lot of people. But they've got room, and it's lovely. So you need you need that. When you've got three thousand people in a place that holds thirty thousand people, they've got way too much room. Mm. Um, so, but it didn't matter. Because, you know, the entertainment was still there. And it's not like the, the ravers weren't about it ain't busy. This is it, it. Ravers weren't about that. It was about I don't care. I, I'm having it. I'm focused on what's going on. And and how much did you lose? Uh, I think uh, probably about 60 grand after all. Whoa. And, and, and uh, uh, you know, because obviously you were putting on a lot of events at that time. So you would have been doing quite well. Um, but... But any business losing sixty grand is is going to feel that. Uh, how did it impact upon your next few events, next years uh, after that? Uh, in business, you have to be prepared to accept that, uh, and you, you you can't be surprised if that happens because it, it's out of your control. You put on an event, anything can happen. COVID happened. I mean, you know, sixty grand losing in an event. It's not great, but I've made plenty of money. So it, it you know, it's it is what it what it is. Uh, COVID has shut down many people. You know, you have to be. You can never be prepared for a pandemic, but you can be prepared for an accident on the M25 and think if something like that happens, they can't get to you um, anyway. So you've always got these things in the back of your mind, and that's why being a promoter, when you say do you enjoy it, yeah, you enjoy it when it's happening. Uh, but at the beginning and when it's people are coming in, that's when you're freaking out a little bit. And um, that that was that was that time for me. But, you know, it was what it was. It was move on. Next. You know? what, what year was that? Uh, 90, I want to say 92, I think. Okay. I mean, you carried on. You carried on promoting for many years after that. And um, your events would eventually represent the split in the scene uh i've seen flyers where there's a hardcore room 
and there's a drum and bass, you know, there's a jungle room. And uh, I'm interested to know your your view and your take on that change and, 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 and how you experienced it and what you felt about it. I didn't split rooms like that. I didn't do that. I've uh, seen an event. I've seen an orange flyer that says, in this room, Abbey Hardcore, in that room, jungle. Am I wrong? I mean, I'm sure I've seen this. I'm no, sure I'm I've seen wrong. a flyer like that. I'm probably um, if it's that late, then it. W w yeah, maybe maybe I I might have done that, but it it wasn't real. I, I mean, I didn't want to. I didn't feel that the music needed to be split. It was going. It wasn't split. It was going towards jungle, uh, and and um, it was getting faster and faster. And the jungle music was coming in, which which was a bit of a different vibe, uh, and. Um, I think by '95, uh, it was it wasn't the same kind of vibe for Orange. So there was other promoters that were doing jungle events, and and it was more it suited them more than it suited me. Um, so what did you? How did you reflect that then? I stopped. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, it, it just didn't. It just wasn't. Why is that? So you're saying that the jungle vibe wasn't really orange, and I can totally get that because it did go for a moody period, and it was you know crack cocaine use and all that sort of stuff, and there was it, it was dark at, at times, and we, we we've we've talked about that on the pod loads and loads of times. But the happy hardcore scene was not that. It was I would say sort of in keeping really with. Yeah, but I, I I wasn't playing happy hardcore. I mean that happy hardcore that one sixty BPM boom 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 stuff. No, I mean are we talking about that? Well, well the, no, in the 95, there was, well, 93, wasn't it? So it sort of like went to sort well, of darker was, stuff and then happier stuff. And then eventually the four beat came in in sort of 95, 96. But it was right. all break beat, but it was just happier break beat at that point. But that happy hardcore sound that Slipmat developed in 1993 and then, you know, right. really w was fantastic in 94. Yeah. And then right. mm, some people like it, which is fair enough, but not for, you know, not necessarily probably for me. But I'm not talking necessarily about that, but I'm talking about that 95 happy vibe. That's that's sort of an orange feel. No, by then it was done. It, 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 by then it was done. It was a different crowd coming. Um, there was there was a different feeling. There was other types of music coming in onto the scene, garage and uh, garage, not garage. I sounded American then. Sorry about that. You do sound a bit American, but it's not a huge surprise. You've lived there garage, for ages. Uh, garage um, music was coming in, and uh, you know the the jungle thing wasn't. I didn't. It just it just wasn't orange. Um, there was other. There there was a bunch of reasons why I I decided not a bunch. A couple of reasons why I decided to stop. Um, there was other events going on, which was purely, I think, driven by money and not necessarily driven by the type of people that they wanted to bring in and the atmosphere they wanted to create. It was about how much money can we get? Um, and it was it was kind of bringing in the wrong crowd. Uh, so I, I wasn't feeling it. I just I just stopped it. I did a Hippodrome. Hippodrome 22, I think, was the last one I did. Is there anything that commercialization and uh, capitalism hasn't fucked up? <laughs> it absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I mean, but the 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 thing with this is, I think it, it was fucked up with from within. You know, normally you get a company will come in and sponsor someone and commercialize the hell out of it, and it's shit. Um, that that never actually happened. 
but I, it's just the way the music went, the punters went, and and I think it, it just kind of people started moving away. The music was very fast, uh, the jungle thing, and it wasn't happy hands in the air with piano necessarily. It it was different, uh, and I, I I wasn't feeling that so. I just said, this is the last orange. That's it. We're done. How did, uh, how did people react to hearing that it was the last orange? You'd have to ask them. I, I, I you, must have, you must have spoken to your punters. They must have told you how they felt about the, this, the rave that they followed. Um, yeah, I think we all knew what was going on back then. I think we all was like-minded that, yeah, and, and I didn't want to put on an orange that wasn't safe and happy. Uh, and And it was about again, it's not, I, I could have carried on and taken the money, but it would have given us a bad reputation. Maybe you only, you only want one bad thing to go down and it, and it, it, it tarnishes everything that you've been doing. Uh, I didn't want to risk it. Your name's not Dan. You're not coming. In. So DJ Chris Paul here on Raw, the 90s Rave podcast. You quit Orange because it was not, you weren't really feeling it and it would have ended up with you not enjoying it and actually reputationally damaging it. So you decided to leave it behind. But then you decided as well to quit the country altogether and you went to the US in 97, 1998. Why did you do that and where did you go to? Uh, I, I had a lot of contacts and a few businesses and a few things going on in LA. I was I was backwards and forwards a lot. Um and uh, I just, you know, I got to the point where I'd done everything I thought I could do. Uh, I've worked in all the clubs. Uh, I've been flying out to Mallorca doing clubs, Ibiza, Portugal, um, Germany. I'm at the Hippodrome. I'm at Stringfellows. You know, I kind of reached what I thought was a pinnacle of a DJ career with doing all this stuff. Um, and London was getting a bit moody around them. 98, Blair was in. It was it was all a bit iffy. Uh, I didn't like it. And I thought, well, maybe I'll move to America and try it out there. So I did. Well, you um, made a huge success of it. You, you ended up working with Ice-T. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and, obviously, and, of course, as we mentioned, becoming success, a successful events DJ. First Ice-T... How did you become getting with Ice T, and what was that like? Just kind of met him through some other people. Um, um, got chatting. People are always interested in an English accent here, uh, and if you're in the music business a little bit, they're they're also interested because you know London, England's pretty hip with music. So people, when you're in the business, they do kind of question you a little bit about what's going on because we've always been a couple of years ahead of the US musically. Probably more. Probably more. Um, so I, I got chatting to him and, and went up to his house um, with which had the studio overlooking the... He was in the Hollywood Hills. The studio was in there. And he was working with a few other acts like Latin Fros, which was a Latin hip hop band. So I got involved in producing them for him. Um, and I did a couple of things on his Body Count album. He, he does Body Count, which is kind of a metal uh, show, heavy metal kind of thing. Um, I didn't do any hip hop with him. You don't 
I, white boy from London doesn't do hip hop. Right? <laughs> uh, you just listen and learn. You just listen and learn. Uh, and I learned from uh, the OG uh, and understood hip hop. And people were coming through his studio, Cormo D, all, all kinds of people were coming through, you know, Dre and come. It's just, it was, again, surreal. Right place, right time. Um, what were they like? Just great. You know, Americans are so friendly. Uh, um, Americans are, they're, they're very cool. They're very cautious around the Brits because I don't, none of them get our humor and they're not sure if we're dissing them or not. So I was always very careful not to have a sense of humor, uh, not try and be funny. Um, but it was just an interest in education and, and, and learning about what hip hop was really all about and what, what were they rapping about? What were they talking about? Because I was playing hip hop in England, but I wasn't really listening to what they were talking about. It didn't didn't make sense to a lot of the Brits, uh, I guess. But understanding it and understanding what it was all about—a DJ-led music with with an MC um, uh, uh, talking about current situations, but not necessarily your own. I mean, a lot of them that would rap, it, it didn't happen to them. Um, but uh, it was just getting messages. Well, the, the, the things that they say that happened to them didn't actually happen to them. Like stand-up comedians, like none of that, none of the things they like, didn't actually experience that. No, lot of them. <laughs> in, in they're, they're all really posh and middle class. Well, I mean, <laughs> Kanye is. I mean, Kanye's loaded. I mean, he's he's not even from the ghetto. Kanye can't rap about any of that because he ain't from there. To be um, fair, a lot of them struggle will struggle to rap about any of that now because they are so blooming rich. Um, and I mean, they have a hard time. Uh, but, but yeah, it was. Um, and, and back then, you know, it was it was like the late nineties, so it was good hip hop. It was the mm. you, know, you, you you good stuff uh, that was was danceable. JD and and Jay Z and and uh, JD um, and, and all that. I'm I'm just trying to think of the. The stuff back then, but you know the old school kind of hip hop, yeah. and, and and the names. Which, which there's none of that now. I don't hear hip hop anymore. But um, that that was an interesting education. And I was out then DJing in Hollywood. I was doing five nights a week suddenly in the Hollywood clubs because guess who was on my guest list? So I, I suddenly it's like who are you? Uh, which I got there in in LA. I'm Ice T's mate. Uh, yeah, well, I'm his mate. It's, oh, <laughs> uh, fantastic! What a great, what a great experience that must have been. And um, uh, you also, oddly, or interestingly, uh, have gone back into the police force in Palm Springs, albeit as a volunteer. Um, why did you do that, and what does that role involve? Um, you know, I, I like getting involved in communities. Uh, I, I, I like uh, seeing, uh, helping people. I like helping people and being involved in, in things like that. And the police department here in Palm Springs, great police department, and they do a volunteer program, which is a bit like a special uh, uh, in England. And um, so I went through the whole training thing and joined up, and I get to drive a American cop car around. Um, and be involved in that kind of thing. Now, I don't carry a gun because um, only sworn officers carry a gun. Uh, so the calls that we deal with are non-confrontational. Obviously, they're okay. not sending 
into a domestic violence call or, or fight uh, because they handle it completely differently here, things. So we deal with the non-confrontational calls. There's plenty of them, traffic accidents, people, you know, little things that we can deal with that they're not going to be pulling out guns and stuff like that. So um, it's, you know, you get to help a lot of people. Uh, and um, we kind of bridge that gap as well between the public and, and the, the sworn officers because we've got a little more time to talk to the public. Right. So we got a we got a unit that's very active, and I'll do two or three days a week patrol. Um, what, 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 what's the American public's view of of the police? Because I know that they, they, they there's often tension between depends them, and, and, and that bob, and that does bubble over at times. Depends on where you live. It's the same as in England. It's just you know, Amersham. They probably love their police department. Mm. You know. Um, uh, Camberwell, they might not. I mean, I, I, you know, in Palm Springs, they love and support their police department. Right. Uh, a lot of the Valley cities, they, you know, it's, it's not like the Met, which is an enormous, you know, there's all police departments, Palm Springs Police Department, Cathedral City Police Department, you know, Redlands Police Department, Los Angeles Police Department is big. The Sheriff's Department we have that work with us. Um, so, there's lots of d departments and, and depending on where you live and uh, is, is, you know, police are going to react to you, you react to situations within where, where you are. Um, you know, we, we got a fair share of gang stuff here in Palm Springs still, but it's, yeah, there's no tension. There's no tension here. Well, that's good. Um, and you must still enjoy it. And not only that, you've had, success you've won an award yeah i uh yeah it's amazing i mean it, it's amazing uh what happened uh what's happened here i got a secret service um award and uh i won a medal of courage I wasn't planning on running into a burning apartment building but you know w when it's on fire and people are pointing there's people trapped and you're in a police car. You you kind of your instinct. Uh, you on know. All oh, right. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's on me. Oh, okay. Right. In, in we go. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> yeah, coming back from a, a traffic accident and coming back, and literally the call come out structure fire apartment building. Calls came in, and it was there. I was literally, we were literally, we turned left and we were there and people are screaming. Is there trapped? There's flames coming out and me and my partner and, and there was six officers arriving. We, we just, we just ran in and, and um, got everybody out. It was uh, pretty bad. Uh, fire. Were you, not, were you not scared? You, you don't think about that. You, you, you don't went in a situation and you wouldn't. Tom, if something happened like that, you would you would act instinctively. Uh, 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 but training helps you act instinctively in the correct manner. Uh, so it, it's not about fear. Uh, although fire is is the smoke w w was very very scary. Uh, my focus was finding people and getting getting them out at the time, and it ha happens quick. And how many people were in there, and how many people did you save? Well, I mean, it was the whole second and third floor of, wow. it must have been 20, 25, we, we got out. It's not like we dragged them out life-saving. Yeah, you, you helped them out, yeah, yeah. 
they they didn't know. And the thing is, with smoke, uh, the alarms are going off, but smoke will kill you. Smoke will uh, put you out pretty quick. So uh, time is of the essence in things like that. And it was fortunate we were right there and we were able to go in uh, and clear that out to a point where we got to the third floor and we we went in and we couldn't see a thing. It was just black uh, as smoke. And then coming the other way was we we saw a figure uh, and it was the fire department in all their gear and everything. They said, it's all right, lads, we got it from here. And they they helped us out. And and they they took it took over um wow. yeah and i got a medal for that fantastic you got it wow look at that i'll put you onto full screen so we can see it there we go that's a shiny old medal Isn't that nice how yeah. many ray promoters can say they've got one of them hey eh, chris exactly exactly that's what i I'm t- t- i i'm gonna tell you i'm gonna go out on a limb and i'm gonna say none so there you go <laughs> <laughs> um, and in terms of your DJing, and congratulations by the way on your run. Um, in terms of uh, your DJing, you're you're an events DJ, and you've played some really interesting and significant events, uh, and and we're playing regulars uh, in in your area. Obviously, not for the past year. Has that been real difficult for you financially and also mentally? You know. I, I did end up working a lot of cool gigs in LA and I became um, uh, Jeff Goldblum, the actor. He's got a jazz band and I became his DJ, which oh, is really I'm playing jazz funk. I world. love that man. I'm not very sort of, I don't really care for celebrities particularly, but I love Jeff Goldblum. I think I he's too. amazing. He exactly how he is on, on films like that yeah. is exactly how he is. He doesn't nice. act. That's, nice him uh he's, he seems hilarious, great hilarious brilliant jazz piano player really piano player and he has a band and he was doing events in these d- different hollywood places um so i went i'll be his dj i'll warm up and and stuff like that uh and playing jazz funk and, and it was great um and i ended up then working with dennis quaid the actor uh, and his band um it was it was kind of weird and doing the Hollywood clubs and doing these with these like the guys in Jurassic Park and he's up there playing the piano. It is is so everything is surreal. I don't know. I've just been lucky, right place at right time. But I then that's a, that's a message of a lot of people. Uh, a lot of a lot of the people we've interviewed sort of that, that's something that comes across in a lot of their interviews. It's just I don't really know how it happened, but. But I think it's, it's it's putting yourself in those places that, that those good things come from, right? That and probably karma. I don't know. You do the right thing. It, you, you, things come around in your favour if you do, if if you do the right thing. Um, and uh, I, I I don't know. I, I used to get on with everybody. I treated everyone with respect. I do when I DJed. I took it seriously. I wasn't drunk. I wasn't getting drunk. I wasn't doing. So I had a bit of a name as a, you can trust that guy. You know, he, he's good. He's, you know, he's British. Cook the accent is, is mm-hmm. you know, they love it. They think we're smarter than them. And so, how, and so how have you found the last year not being able to play out? It's funny. The last year, um, March, it was. Last gig I did was 7th of March. And then it was the following weekend. I thought, I might as well just set my gear up here and play a few records on the internet. And I'd never done any of this streaming stuff. I don't know how much you was into it, but I didn't. I, I knew a Facebook Live, so I just switched it on and started playing. And suddenly, 
I ended up with 2,000 of like the old Orange crew all from England are, are coming on. They're all sharing this thing because everyone's yeah, down. Everyone's on the internet. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm starting to play and I'm playing a few old rave tunes. And I didn't have a sound card set up. I had the phone. And so it was the sound going through the phone. And I'm looking on Facebook. It's like 2,000 people on there. And they're like, 2,000 comments. Oh, my God, Orange, it's back. I recognize the voice. Oh, my God, this is Camden. And suddenly there's all these 50-year-olds jumping on. And I found my family again. I found my Orange family. Uh, Blew my mind that that they was all out there. It just just blew up. And so I've been doing Orange at Camden Every Friday, streaming live from here, from 8 till 11 UK time. Every Friday night, I've been streaming for a year now. Um, It's all about that group. I started a Facebook group, Orange Official Orange Raves or Orange Raves Official. I don't know. It's it's got orange in it. It's it's on Facebook. We got two and a half thousand members on one, a thousand on the other. Mm. And these are true, right? I mean, they got their membership cards. They've got the flyers. They've even got tickets I used to sell from the Rocket. 30 years old. Wow. I mean, I ain't got any of that stuff. I didn't save any of that stuff. Who knew? Who knew? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and so were they saying, you're obviously bringing back Orange, aren't you, Chris? I got guilted into this reunion. <laughs> I was guilted into it. I've got a lovely, I've got a great life here. I love it. I got a great life. I've been guilted into this thing uh, by, by you lot watching. Uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I, I'm putting on that reunion, and it's going to be a reunion that's going to be incredibly emotional. Emotional. Um, there's going to be tears. There's going to be. It, it's just. It's going to be incredible. It is a reunion. I mean, we're doing a raid, but all these people. They're forty-five and up. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to be at the Scala, um, well, August Bank Holiday. Is that right? Yeah. Um, Twenty-ninth Scala, yeah. eight till we finish. I'd like it to be around one, but it'll probably end up about four or five or something like that. You know, I like an early night these days. <laughs> yes, um, <so> do I. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a Scala. It's uh, tickets are from, uh, can I t- say that? Tickets are from dice.fm. So whatever you like, mate. It's my Somewhere. podcast. I don't know what it is. Um, you get the tickets, but yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we ain't got many tickets left. I mean. Is that right? Well, well, that was a question I was going to ask you. Um, how has it sold so far? Yeah, it went mental. The first three hours we sold 500 tickets. Wow. As I launched it, it was all these, all, all on the group, they're waiting. They were waiting. And how many people are going to, what's the capacity? How many holds about uh, 13, 1,400, I think, 1,300. Okay. How, many, how many tickets are left? Um, As in well, how quick do people need to be to get in there, Chris? We, 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 we I was releasing them in stages. So, uh, um because I was, I was being, I'm very aware of COVID and regulations, but it looks like with the roadmap that we got, uh, we're going to be well clear by then, probably well clear by July uh, for events and stuff like that. So I was being a little cautious with the ticket release, but there's about, uh, oh, probably about, I haven't checked, about 300 left. Okay. And, and, and what can people expect? What sort of promotion can people expect? Who's playing, which is uh, uh, what people often look for? Let me just check the flyer. 
<laughs> it's good you uh, know. <laughs> um, yeah, we've got uh, Nuki. Nuki is a big favourite. Any anything by Nuki, um, the Orange Crew, and I personally absolutely love. So I had to have uh, Gavin uh, play for us. Um, huge track, the Love Is EP, for example. Uh, you know, the give a little more than the nooky thing. It's an absolute huge anthem. Uh, it's a hands in the air. It's all about it. It's, I should say, Isotonic is, is really the orange anthem, but you know, Nookie's stuff. Uh, so he's playing Criminal Minds. We're going to have them live. Um, a, again, another huge track from uh, Criminal Minds. And John Seduction's going to be playing. Um, John had a bunch of great tracks out, a great DJ and a good mate. So him, uh, Groove Rider, um, Ray Keith. Um, I'll be playing DJ Squirrel, who's been with me since Camden. Uh, and we've got Tamsin, who's original Orange, all original Orange uh, people. Um, and then we've got a, a, another room, which I'm going to be having kind of a bit old school and some house and acid. Um, so we got some Center Force guys in there. Johnny C, um, Milka from Center Force, Dean Lambert, uh, Rich Jones, Tony J, and John Fernandez. So we got a great lineup of real good pro DJs that really know their music um, and, and know my crap. Mm. which is the most important. And what about the production? Because you, your, your, your raves were famed for their production. What are you planning? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm coming into London in June to do production meetings because I haven't actually been to Scala. Right. So I've got to see it to yep. know what to do there. And it's smaller. It's like a mini Camden, everybody tells me. It's got balconies yep. and like that. But everything, the production will, I, I always think the production should happen at the stage level. It, that should be where it's from. When I did Camden, the DJ was on the side and everyone, like two, 3,000 people are raving. They're facing the stage where the laser was. So I always thought we should focus things. And I did that at the Rocket and at the Hippodrome and at the Astoria. Everything will be focused out from the stage. There'll be a big production going on from there. I'm trying to bring in all the old lights that we used to use back 30 years ago. Not these newfangled things, but the old strobe flowers and the laser that I used to use at the uh, Astoria and the rocket. Uh, I've got two of them, which is completely overkill for a little venue. Um, these two massive lasers, but uh, no. uh, yeah, production, we're going to have dancers. Um, it, it, it's, it's good, but until I get there, I'm yeah. not sure what I want to do. Yeah, and and, it, and how how have you found promoting from a different continent? Because I can't imagine that's all that easy. I mean, the ticket sales sound like they've been fairly straightforward, but um, it must be quite difficult. Uh, and obviously, you're going to have to fly in for to to look at it. I mean, but have you found the promoting from way over there? Weird, weird. Float promoting these days is, is kind of weird. I'm I'm already a printer flyer, and everyone's saying flyer, <laughs> but I'm doing flyers. I'm doing flyers. I'm having a flyer painted by an artist it's going to be incredible the actual flyer because i know ravers want one i know they want to keep that flyer are you, you people wallpaper their bedrooms and, and stuff with flyers so you've got to have a flyer um 
but it's kind of weird. I haven't really promoted it much. Done a few things on Facebook and 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 the internet, but you know, people already know we're there. They know what to expect. Uh, they're either going to come or they're not, uh, and um, a lot of people know about it. But well, I mean, it sounds uh, like they are going to come. They've already bought their tickets. So uh... a lot of bought their ticket. And, and in June, I'm going to be doing another. I'm taking over Centre Force Radio again for the second time as an Orange takeover. We had thousands on on the last one, so we're going to do that again uh, in June when I come over. So that's that's going to empty out the rest of the tickets that night anyway uh, and are there any fears that it won't go ahead due to covid or will as i suspect might rather be the case that they'll have it'll have a reduced capacity i uh, i i really don't think there's going to be any of that uh, uh, looking at the roadmap i've been watching it very carefully and seeing the roadmap that the uk have done which is to me a better roadmap than the us has done because the us is like 50 different countries all arguing with each other uh, one's letting the mask off, one isn't. But the UK have, have got a really good roadmap. roadmap. And these, these events are starting in June and July. Uh, and we're right at the very end of August. Um, uh, even with the fail-safe and the extra weeks, if the tears don't come down, uh, I still think we're easily in the clear. I have no concerns a lot like they say on the um uh, on the disinfectant wipes i'm 99.9 percent sure we're going to be absolutely fine oh, well i uh, admire your optimism and i hope that you're right because uh, i well not only for you but i also want to come because it is just before i have a second child and i'm basically in my own lockdown for another year so uh, <laughs> I, I do want to come uh, so i'm looking forward to it and and where finally where can people find out more about it if they do want to get one of those very few tickets that are remaining you know on, on facebook just search for the orange raves page uh we're on there um all the information's there uh you know, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, Orange Raves Family, I think it's called. I've got a terrible memory these days. It's fine. Yeah. People can find it. It's on the internet. Um, well, listen, Chris, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for your time. And um, you, Tom. Well, I hope it's a roaring success and we will all hopefully all be in well. See you in August. I hope so. And is that light available for production? Because... Uh, the, the raw one, yeah. Oh, we, the, the light that goes against the wall here, like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll do your deal. I'll do I your think deal. that's going to look good from the stage, mate. I mean, I really, <laughs> I'm liking it. I'll do you. I'm sure we can work something out. But as you said to Pete Tong, it is going to cost you. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> See you soon, Chris. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Well, that's it for another episode of Raw. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love you to get involved. All of us here at Raw HQ buzz hard of how much you, the Raw crew, enjoy our work and your generous cash donations have been a huge help since our launch. But we're now a team of five, putting in combined 80 hours a week for no wages. We've got loads of plans to go further, expand our team and offer. But that does mean that our costs are also increasing. So we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing as you've done since we started. So please do check out our website initially. It's rawuk.com for interesting extra content and to get your hands on our first ever range of raw merchandise. That's rawuk.com. 
We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can donate to create more interesting and fun content on an ongoing basis, and you'll even get stuff in return. So head to patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods. That's patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods to see what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is the same. Or if you're not bothered about membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or repeat donation, head to our website and click the PayPal link. That website URL, one more time, rawuk.com. Respect to you for your support and for getting to the end of this episode. Please keep supporting us and help ensure there's more quality content coming your way on a regular basis. Oi, oi. Rawr, rawr, rawr.